that's related to the sermon. Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, this morning we pray that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love to travel by the looks of this room this morning and knowing many of you, uh, you like to travel as well. Uh, The summer provides opportunity for travel. We're less hindered by things like school and other burdens. And when we think about traveling, there's a number of things to think about, particularly if we're thinking about traveling to a place that is unknown to us, particularly when we're thinking about traveling to a place uh, that might have a weightiness to it, let's say Europe or some other international destination or maybe a trip to the West Coast or wherever it may be. Uh, There's different things that we need to do when we get ready to travel. One of the things that I always do when I'm getting ready to take a trip, particularly if it's to a place that I've not been before or a place that I feel like that I have not fully canvassed with regard to knowledge, is I will read. I will read about that place. I'm sure you do the same. It's become pretty accessible to be able to do so, no longer going to a local bookstore and buying a Fedor's book or Fromer's Guide to Milan or whatever. You can just Google these things, and you can read travel blogs, and you can read forums, and you can read reviews. And so we do that, just generally speaking, about places that we travel, and we're thankful for these guides. You know, historically, people like Rick Steves, right? It's a throwback name. And then more modern-day people uh, like Anthony Bourdain, uh, who we lost, unfortunately, just... A few weeks ago, these men and women that write and travel also are on TV. And so you watch them go to these places, and essentially they lead you. They lead us through these places. They give us knowledge of these places. They show us where to go in these particular cities or these countries. Maybe most importantly, they tell us where to eat and to seek nourishment through good food and beverage, which are so integral to people's cultures, to be able to really explore and integrate into a place. We're thankful for these people. We're thankful for these guides. We're thankful for this leadership on these journeys that we love to take. As I've reflected upon Anthony Bourdain, and I'll have to reflect more deeply later as I've watched him for the last 10 years and feel like I actually knew him personally, though I did not. I've watched him enough and read him enough when he um, tragically uh, lost his life just a few weeks ago. There was a personal loss to me. Because in many ways, as silly as this might sound, Anthony Bourdain to me with regard to food and travel was a shepherd. He shepherded me by leading me into new places. And he did so with a uniqueness. Not only did he shepherd those who watched him and read him, one of the things I loved about Bourdain is that he shepherded people that he visited. Bourdain had a proclivity to see people that other people didn't see. Bourdain liked the underbelly of certain cities. Bourdain liked to travel in the subterranean. 
Bourdain didn't like to go where everybody else went, and Bourdain oftentimes did not like to talk to everybody else, who everybody else wanted to talk to. He wanted to find commoners. He wanted to find the real people, the real culture, the real chefs and cooks that nobody might know about. In so many ways, he really was a shepherd who led, who identified, who showed the paths, who nourished and flourished the people that he is with and the people that watched him as well. And I was one of those people. When I read Psalm 23, which has this metaphor and motif of a shepherd, we also see leading. We see leading along a journey. And specifically here, we see God leading his people. And that's the big idea of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, for our purposes this morning that I want us to reflect more deeply upon, is simply that God leads his people. God leads his people to life abundantly. God leads his people to new life initially. God leads his people to life continually as a shepherd. And we're going to look at the different components of his leadership. But before we do that, we must recognize here in the beginning that we all are led by someone or something. We are all shepherded in our journey of life. We are all guided. We are all nourished. We are all seeking fulfillment through some form of shepherding. And we've talked about this actually extensively over the last few weeks through Psalm 16 when we talked about uh, those who run after other gods, their sorrows will increase. And the, the day and time that David, who wrote this psalm, lived in was not unlike our day and time. It's a very pluralistic time where, yes, the God of Israel was relevant and prevalent, yet so were many other gods in David's time. Just like in our day and time, there are many other gods. Last week, we looked at Psalm 19, and we held up it as the rule, the standard, God's word, his guidance in our life that we see through the Holy Scriptures. But we also made the point that everyone has a rule, a canon, a standard through which you make decisions. And here we see that same motif again. Psalm 23 holds, out as, holds to us God as our leader and God as our shepherd But once again, we don't have a choice whether we will be shepherded or led or not. The choice is, and and the battle that's waged in our hearts and minds are, or is, who is leading us? Who is our shepherd? Well, Psalm 23 puts before us this idea that God is our leader and that God is our shepherd. And there's three things that I want us to reflect upon with regard to the way in which God leads his people. First, I want us to look at how God leads his people. He leads us with care. Secondly, I want us to look at where God leads his people. He leads us to rest. And then thirdly, I want us to look at why God leads his people. And I want us to see that God leads his people because he loves us. So we're going to look at God's care. We're going to look at God's rest, and we're going to look at God's love as we consider more deeply the components of his leadership. Let's look at verse 1 as we see, once again, this verse that would be the most well-known from the psalm, which David, the psalmist, confesses, the Lord is my shepherd. And by the way, this psalm is in the category of psalms that we looked at, once again, with Psalm 16. It's considered a psalm of confidence. 
And psalms of confidence are important because the psalmist, like us, did not always proclaim these truths with confidence, though they did sometimes. But I'd like to think that maybe more often they proclaimed these psalms in order to gain confidence. Do you understand the difference? A lot of times we can misunderstand what it means to proclaim truths of Christianity. And we think, oh, I'm not worthy to proclaim that because I don't really feel like that. Or I really don't think like that. Or that's not really what I believe every day all the time. And then I would say, better reason to proclaim it then. And I believe that's what David is doing here. I do believe he had this confidence, but I also believe that he lacked confidence. So he needed to speak these words of confidence and say things like, the Lord is my shepherd. Of course, this metaphor rang more true in agricultural ancient Israel than it does to us today, but we all have some vague recollection or connotation. Maybe you've been to the Irish countryside and seen a shepherd and sheep, or maybe you've been like we were last weekend near Norris Lake and saw a field of sheep. I didn't see a shepherd. We did see a sheep dog that was shepherding. In that way, but we get the connotation, we get the idea. Of course, a shepherd is a leader, a shepherd is a guider. And you probably know full well various characteristics of sheep. Sheep, while they might be kind hearted, aren't the smartest. Right? Uh, Sheep can be naive and ignorant. And that's in an innocent way. Sheep also, maybe not so innocently, have a proclivity to go astray. And we see this motif pictured throughout the scriptures that God is a shepherd who cares for intimately his sheep. And that's the idea that I want us to see about God's leadership first and foremost, that there is this intimate leading, there is this intimate caring, there is this relational dynamic not dissimilar to the dynamic that a shepherd has with his sheep. Jesus himself even picks up this motif in John chapter 10. We heard it read in our gospel reading this morning. Jesus himself says that he is the good shepherd and that his sheep know his voice and that he knows his sheep by name. There's care and intimacy and connection there that we have with God as our leader and God as our shepherd. Something that I and my family, I think, as a whole are obsessed with when it comes to being able to watch clips on YouTube. We love James Corden's uh, sketches with uh, Carpool Karaoke. And this won't be the first or the last time uh, that I mentioned James Corden and Carpool Karaoke, especially with the most recent rendition of Paul McCartney, which I will resist right now uh, from going in and preaching the rest of the sermon Uh, on that sketch. If you haven't seen it, you can just YouTube it. But one of the things that happens, in in case you're unfamiliar, James Corden is a British uh, talk show host that that, uh, is in America. Um, And he's a late night talk show host. He's on a different network than Jimmy Fallon, but pretty similar. And so he has this regular little deal where he will be driving to work in LA and he will get a phone call and you don't know who's on the other end of the phone But if you've seen the sketch before, you know it's going to be a a musical pop star. Uh, And so he will say, oh, yeah, come on. And then you never know who's going to get into his car. And then this famous person uh, that's a singer gets into his car. Most of them are singers. Um, And then he'll say something like, do you want to listen to some music? And then he'll turn on their music. And so there he is, for example. This was not in L.A., but one of the first ones I saw was him picking up Adele in London. 
And then there they are in his car singing her songs until he persuades her to start to sing the Spice Girls, which is amazing. Um, but it's these really incredible moments. At one time, he picks up Lin-Manuel Miranda when, he's hosting, when Corden is hosting the Tony Awards last year in New York. And he, he just does this. He picks up Bieber. He's got two of them with Bieber, and both of them are fantastic. Um, it's these, why am I bringing this up? Because it's this amazing connection that James Corden has with these people that's very intimate. But the thing that's really interesting about that dynamic is that the people that are really the bigger deal are not James Corden, but it's the people, the famous people, the singers that are getting into the car with him. But he's not getting into their car. They're getting into his car. And they're leading, and they're singing, and he's joining. And it really is this fantastic, funny, profound, and intimate connection and moment where there's genuine care that's taking place in this late-night talk show sketch on a regular basis. Well, that's what we see with God. We see God leading us through caring for us as a shepherd. But the next question I want us to consider is not only that God leads us with care, but where is God leading us? And this is where I want to spend more time than that point and definitely more time than the last point. And I want to camp out and just kind of linger here a little bit longer. So we answered the question, how God leads us. God leads us with care. This next question I want us to answer is, where does God lead us? And I want us to consider that God leads us to rest. Now, rest is summarized by these specific metaphors in verses 2, 3, and 4. If you will, look with me in your bulletin at this text. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to repeat verse 1. He makes me, which is an interesting uh, idea there. The connotation that I have is uh, having young kids um, that are really, really tired and that need to rest, like during the day in this thing called a nap. And I can remember often we would make them lie down. And they would fight and fight and fight until their eyes were closed. And then they would rest because they needed it. And in many ways, this is what God as a shepherd and as this spiritual father is making his people take a nap. He's making his people lie down. Why? Because we need rest. Where do we lie down? The text tells us in green pastures. Now, the Hebrew here is pretty interesting. One commentator expounds upon this a little bit more and says the green grass that the, that the psalmist mentions here from the Hebrew has a specific element to it. It's a particular type of green grass that has a cooling nature to it. And doesn't that just sound fantastic? To lie down in cool green grass and somewhere like, I don't know, the Shire. God makes his people lie down. He leads them beside still waters. Now, commentators differ a little bit on what waters are still, and you could take your pick, really, because no one knows for sure. But let's think about a placid lake. As I mentioned last weekend, our family was at Norris Lake, which, of course, is beautiful, aided by the fact that it's like 180,000 feet deep, and it's so clear and so beautiful. Um, And when we woke up in the morning you know, before 7 a.m. and no boats are out, no noise, you just see the water look like glass. 
and it's restful, and it's peaceful. So some commentators think that's what he's reflecting on. Others say, no, 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 no. He's probably reflecting on a flowing stream that in and of itself, it is not restful or static. It's dynamic, but because of that dynamism that a flowing stream creates, it makes our hearts restful. And we know that feeling too, right? We've been in the mountains. There's nothing like sitting by a flowing stream of water. While it's moving, it has this effect to still our own hearts. And so God does this. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. And as a result of this, He restores our soul. And this is an important point that I want us to catch. I believe this is the normative way in which God leads His people. And I'm going to expound upon this more in just a minute through other examples in Scripture. As I say, we're going to linger here a little bit longer. But this is the way that God normatively, intentionally, regularly leads His people. I believe that God's disposition in His relationship as shepherd with His people continually, regularly, is to lead us to rest is to lead us to green pastures and still waters, is to lead us to soul restoration. Our souls are in need of being restored. We were even reminded about this pretty profoundly, I gather. Many of you might have seen Chris Pratt's speech, Chris Pratt of Gardens of the Galaxy fame and Jurassic Park fame, among others, at the MTV Awards just over a week ago, when he's accepting an award, gives nine rules of life. And essentially within these nine rules, you have humor interspersed with amazing gospel profundity and clarity. Like explicit references to things like the blood of Christ. Pretty amazing just to see in and of itself in the name of salt and light. But Christians should stay away from Hollywood, right? It's another discussion and another sermon. But his rule number two simply said, you have a soul, be careful with it. You have a soul, be careful with it. God knows this. And that's why God shepherds us and leads us to places of rest. That's why God leads us and makes us lie down in green pastures, sends us beside still waters in order to restore our soul because it's important. And it must be tended to and taken care of well. So he leads us to rest ultimately. He leads us beside, you know, in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us to soul restoration. And then verse 4 is pretty curious. He also, and this is important for us to hear because of God's providence and his sovereignty. You know where else God leads us? Into the valley of the shadow of death. It seems almost like an anomaly, but we're thankful that it does because at this point, if verse 4 were not there, it would feel very much like, what are you talking about? Like, what world are you living in? This is exactly why I don't like church and don't listen to preachers. Green pastures, still waters, soul restoration. What in the world are you talking about? And then verse 4. He also leads us through, and even into the valley of the shadow of death. But I would say he keeps the principle intact 
that he leads us into rest even in the midst of the shadows of death. He leads us into calmness even in the midst of chaos. And this is what we need to hear, that God is calling us to peace. He's not calling us to escape. He's calling us to contentment. He's not calling us to complacency. He's calling us to peace, not escape. That's what it means by real rest. Rest, by the way, is something that is active and passive. And in fact, in order to be passive, we must be active. We must actively pursue passivity. It's a lot of work, actually, to surrender. It's a lot of work to proclaim there is a God and He is not me. That's a very active disposition, both mentally and physically. But God, in this, as He's leading us to rest, leads us into peace, not escape. He leads us into contentment, not complacency. But ultimately, He is normatively leading us to rest in the midst of the chaos of our life. This point, I want to linger a little deeper and make some specific, maybe a specific application as I am able to make. Beginning with a question for you. What words characterize your life normatively? What words characterize your life on a daily basis? I'll tell you the words that I hear in my own heart and out of your mouths. Busy. Crazy. Chaotic. Exhausting, tired. And we just all need to hear that's not where God leads us. I know these things characterize our life. I know these things characterize the stock market. I know these things characterize the medical industry. I know these things characterize a preschool and these things characterize a swimming pool in the summer. I'm just telling you, God does not normatively lead His people to busyness, craziness, chaos, and weariness. God leads His people to rest. One person said it like this, when we look at the world, we see that people are exceedingly busy. It is their affections that keep them busy. You know who said that? Jonathan Edwards. Do you know when he was alive? The early 1700s. This busyness, this chaos, this weariness, this chaotic existence is betraying us. How? Heart disease. Suicide, addiction, just to name a few. Henry Nowen, a real leader in this concept for me personally, says this. 
Our lives are worried and overfilled. It is clear that we are usually surrounded by so much outer noise that it is hard to truly hear God when He is speaking to us. We have often become deaf, unable to know when God calls or leads, and unable to understand in which direction He calls us. Thus, our lives have become absurd. In the word absurd, we find the Latin root certus, which means deaf. Does that characterize you? It does me by default, without question. Another leader in this concept and thought for me is a man named Mark Buchanan, who wrote, in my life at least, one of the most influential books I've ever read about 15 years ago, maybe it was 10, called The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. You might want to write that one down, Mark Buchanan. The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. See if you can relate with his first-person account. I was often a whirligig of motion. My days were intricately fitted together like the old game of mousetrap, every piece precariously connected to every other, the whole thing needing to work together for it to work at all. But there was little joy in stunted fruit. We live in a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is considered laziness. But without rest, we miss the rest of God. The rest He invites us to enter more fully so that we might know Him more deeply. Be still and know that I am God, the psalmist says. Some knowing is never pursued, only received. And for that, you need to be still. Sabbath is is both a day and an attitude. To nurture such stillness, it is both time on a calendar and a disposition of the heart. It is a day we enter, but just as much, it is a way we see. Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actually, physically, mentally, spiritually, rest, but also the rest of God, the things of God's nature and presence that we miss in our busyness. God normatively calls His people to rest. Biblical examples of such, I will paraphrase these. Exodus 14, God's people, Israel, are led out of Egypt. They are led into the desert. They are led up to this significant moment on the banks of the Red Sea. They can't cross it, and Pharaoh and his army at this point have changed their minds, and they are pursuing them. While God's people are on this journey, they're on this exodus. Side note, the exodus as in the Old Testament exodus is an accurate metaphor for life. And the way in which God dealt with and deals with his people through the story of that exodus is an accurate representation how God deals with and leads us, his people today. We are all on an exodus. We're on a journey. We daily specifically, and then definitely the meta-narrative of our lives is oftentimes encapsulated in that one moment in Exodus 14 where they're up against the banks of the Red Sea on one end, and they're being pursued by Pharaoh and his army on the other end, and there they are. Here we are. And what do God's people do? They do the same thing you and I do. Freak out. This is a major what the heck is going on 
So much so that they get so scared they resort to sarcasm and cynicism. Sound familiar? They say this, Hey Moses, I know why you brought us here. I know why you let us out of Egypt. There must not be enough graves in Egypt. Ha ha. And Moses exemplifying Psalm 23 like shepherding. You know what he tells him to do? Shut up. It's not what he says, but he does say, be still and be quiet. Shh. Let the Lord work for you. Wait on him. And then it gets dark. And then for an entire night, winds blow so chaotically and so crazily that it splits the Red Sea in half and they cross over it. But God, I believe, is consistently telling his people, shh, be quiet. Let me work for you. Or what about 1 Kings 19, Elijah? Elijah's in somewhat of a personal turmoil and crisis, and he's wanting to meet with God. And so God tells him to go out to a cave and wait there for him. And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they will seek my life and take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And God was in the low whisper. God is speaking. He speaks loudly and specifically in His Word. But beyond that and through that, I believe that God normatively by his own volition and choice, chooses to speak in a whisper. Do you hear it? One more, Isaiah 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but that's not mine, and who stand to make an an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? They're busy. They're going somewhere. They're following somebody. They've got a shepherd. You know what his name is? Pharaoh. And you know where Pharaoh's leading them? Into chaos and into busyness and into exhaustion and into burden. And their feet are quick to follow him. And guess what quick feet lead to? Heavy hearts. I've got a friend who kind of turns that cliche or analogy on end because we always want, you got to be quick on your feet. He says, I'll tell you what quick feet lead us to. Being in a hurry. And they lead us to having heavy hearts. But he flips it upside down. He says, you know, when we have slow feet, It leads to light hearts. Quick feet, heavy hearts. Slow feet, light hearts. Isaiah goes on to say this, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 
Verse 15, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. In repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. You have a soul, be careful with it. Specific application here. Number one, broad category, we must receive this truth. We must receive that this is the way the Lord leads. And then secondly, we must lead like the Lord leads. Let's delve a little more deeply. And once again, this is just application. How does God lead? God leads to rest normatively. And we must receive God's leading into rest. So what does it look like to receive this principle of rest, to be still and to be quiet? Of course, it could look like a lot of things. I'm going to list a few very specific. And I want you to hear these things not as prescriptive or directive, but as suggestive. I can be as guilty as anyone, but preachers are oftentimes guilty of putting forth these great philosophical principles and then just letting like the organic fallacy take over and just hoping and assuming you connect the dots. I'm going to try to connect some dots for you with this principle. Let's think in the realm of technology. What would it look like for you to receive God's rest, to be still, to gather into repentance and rest, quietness and trust, to be still, to hear God's whisper? Would you maybe consider a social media fast? A secondary benefit of that, by the way, could be you would be more content and feel better about yourself. But primarily at this point, we're just talking about creating space. A little bit more with technology. Would you consider, this is a big consideration for all of us, and I'm saying it somewhat sarcastically, but only because it matters. Would you consider fleeing the presence of your devices occasionally? in order to cultivate rest and to hear God speak in a whisper. Men, just a suggestion, what if you left your phone in the glove box when you got home and went and got it, I don't know, after your kids are in bed? Families, what if, just a suggestion, if your whole family is together at dinner, in the house or out of the house, like what if just nobody had a phone on the table? Or near. Because at that point, you are all intact. I get that distant relatives, something could happen or whatever. And, you know, who knows what anyone did before 2000. If we didn't find out at the moment that something happened to somebody. But at least, and I'm trying to make this accessible. When your family of four, five, two, one, whatever your family is. When you are all together, why do you need your phone? Or whatever other devices you use. One more in the realm of technology. I told you these are really specific and you can take heed if you want. And this is between you and the Lord. Um, One assumption I'm making is that some of you read your Bible. Two, an assumption I'm making, those of you that do read your Bible probably read it on a device. Which is fine. Like there's no, I have no verse to tell you that you shouldn't do that. And reading the Bible on anything versus not reading the Bible is better. 
for sure. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But here's the problem with reading the Bible on a device. That Bible verse oftentimes gets interrupted by an email from your boss. And that devotion you're reading gets interrupted from a text, by a text from one of your friends about one of her kids. And that's next to, of course, you following the, the app that helps you follow the stock market or your sports, sports app or your news app, right? All neatly contained within this one little thing. So one suggestion, not right or wrong, just a suggestion. What would it be like to consider reading a paper Bible? By the way, I have a fair degree of self-awareness, I think. I understand how this could maybe sound. And I'm saying it anyway. Just three specific suggestions. A social slash online news. I don't think I mentioned that. Social slash online news media fast. You pick for how long. Flee the presence of always having your devices with you. And then thirdly, consider. Just consider what might happen in the principle and the realm of cultivating rest to read God's word with an actual book and not a device. What this will allow for us to do is cultivate this lost discipline, which I'll mention here in passing and we'll have to take up more regularly along the way because this is not the last time we will talk about this, I promise. We've got to cultivate this lost art of solitude and stillness. We struggle with solitude because so often once we commit to removing the external chaos, the internal chaos within us erupts. And Henry Nouwen says most people can never move beyond that. It's hard enough for people to eliminate external chaos, but then it's so much harder even when you do that to work through the internal chaos. The Abbott brothers say it so well, Will I ever know silence without mental violence? The answer is, I hope, because we need to be able to live our lives with boundaries and limits because God normatively leads his people to rest. And we need to receive that. I won't go into any detail on this, but I'll throw out the principle. Not only do we need to receive the way in which God leads his people to rest, we need to be leading others in that same way. When I think about just personally, just to be candid with you, my leadership as a husband or as a father or as a boss or whatever it is, more times than not, I'm leading people that are following me where I'm going. And you know where I'm going? Busyness, chaos, exhaustion, and weariness. Is that how you want to lead your family? I don't think so. Is that how you want to lead your employees and your work? Is that how you want to lead friendships? What if, by God's grace, we led in the way he led and we led people to rest with boundaries and the limits of being, get ready, human? Green pastures, still waters, soul restoration, How in the world are we going to do this? We'll close with this. Look at verses 5 and 6. 
Why does he lead his people? Because he loves us. You prepare a table before me in the presence in spite of my enemies. It says in the presence of my enemies, or we could read it in spite of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 6 is where I want us to end. God leads his people with care. God leads his people to rest. And God does this because he loves us. And God's called us to receive his leading and then to show forth his leading. And the question at this point is, how? Because my guess is, if I'm reading your faces correctly and if I feel your hearts like I feel my own, we just move out of that specific application with loads of confusion, questions, and even guilt. So what do we do with it? We find comfort in the gospel in verse 6. When the Lord as a shepherd, out of love, pursues us. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. How are we going to create a life that's more indicative of the life that God has called us to live? A life where we receive His rest and a life where we show forth His rest? Here's how. God's going to pursue us to the point of love with goodness and mercy to receive His rest and to show forth His rest. As a result of his commitment and his leading to us, may our lives be different. May this church be different. If you're looking for a church to make you busy, if you think busyness is synonymous with godliness, it's a good time because we're early in our life. You should find another church. Because we're committed here to this initiative of rest, individually and collectively. I'm glad you're here. We close this in prayer. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you lead us. You lead us with care. You lead us to rest because you love us. I pray that we would receive these things. I pray that our lives would be different. I pray 